Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We, we thank you for uh, just gathering us together as a family to know you and enjoy you more and more and, and to know and, and enjoy each other as well more and more. And as we come to your word, uh, we ask, God, that by your grace and mercy, you would help us to understand it, uh, that you would awaken us to uh, spiritual and, and, and ultimate realities, that you would help us to see Jesus for who he really is. Uh, Lord, this is a text that only you can make uh, sweet to our lips, and, and we pray that you would uh, help us to understand the love that you have for us in him. Uh, would you please continue to save and build your church? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, the past several passages in the book of Luke have been pretty difficult uh, in terms of just the sheer gravity of the subject matter, the intense seriousness of it all. Uh, even back to the end of chapter 11, there are woes pronounced against the religious gurus of the day. The beginning of chapter 12, there's a fierce warning against hypocrisy, which is followed by a charge to have a healthy fear of God who can cast people into hell. After that, there is the acknowledgement of Jesus on earth as being the defining factor of his acknowledgement or denial of us in heaven. Jesus has spoken about rich fools and anxious warriors who are too attached to material things. And in the most recent text, he has taught graphically about the levels of judgment visually explained as either being cut into pieces and assigned a place with the unfaithful or a severe beating to illustrate life after death. And as a preacher, I've been flipping ahead, hoping for some kind of relief, hoping to find at least one instance of the word love or, or just any kind of change-up, some butterflies or cupcakes or something, uh, but it's just not there. Jesus seemingly is overtaken by this burden of sitting us down and looking us into the eyes and speaking to us very seriously uh, about very weighty matters back to back to back to back. And, and that is love. You know, as my kids get older, and you've basically seen them grow up here, uh, Brayden just made 14 yesterday. And, and as they age and as I anticipate the things that they're going to go through in this life, I seem to be having a lot more of a certain nature of conversation, especially with the older two. You know, when you get older, you're going to have to think about this. These are the things that trip up young men all the time. Don't trust your feelings only. The patterns of your life now are going to be the patterns of your life later, et cetera, et cetera. And it's gotten to the point where Dane, he didn't want to sit in a car alone with me anymore. <laughs> oh, we're going to have one of those kinds of talks. And he tries to change the subject. What's your favorite food, Daddy? We ain't talking about food. Um, but I find myself uh, here kind of hoping that Jesus would just change the weightiness of his subject matter, and he really doesn't do that. He seems to press into it even more rather than to let up at all because he's not going to be with them in the flesh uh, pretty soon. And he's teaching them in light of this very fact. Because it is that the gospel, uh, Christianity, it changes everything. It really does change everything. And that change may not always be easy, uh, welcomed, uh, accepted, celebrated, uh, but rather difficult, denied, rejected, and his people uh, singled out and sometimes feeling very lonely. And Jesus' words really do explain things within the church and within the world and within our very own lives, and we need to hear them even when it may be uncomfortable to do so. There's a, a deep, deep love here, even when the word love is not explicitly found within these verses. Uh, there is a deep love with the gravity of such topics. In our opening two verses, we get a rare glimpse into the very heart of Jesus as he explicitly tells us what it is that is going on within him as he thinks and dwells upon his own mission and reveals his intimate feelings about it. Please look with me in verse 49. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, 
and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Uh, there's a set of twin desires here within the heart of Jesus. He longs for, for a fire to be cast upon the earth, and he longs for a baptism to be immersed in to the point where Jesus is actually in distress in the meantime. Jesus wants judgment to come, and he wants to undertake judgment upon himself and both at the same time. Now, first, the statement, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Fire is often used as an image of judgment in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah are cities famously destroyed by fire from the sky in Genesis 19. Uh, Hell is called the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Uh, The disciples asked Jesus back in Luke 9, 54, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them, them being the Samaritan village that just rejected Jesus? This is judgment. You can see, see the same imagery throughout the prophets again and again. And there is, within the heart of Jesus, a desire that righteous judgment would be cast upon this sinful world. Jesus is actually, in one sense, uh, eager for it. Uh, he longs to bring justice and righteous indignation upon the earth, and he wishes here that the fire were already kindled. And this is a necessary response of holiness to all that is unholy. This is part of what makes God God, uh, that he hates sin and he, and he wants it to be judged. And this is a side of Jesus that may not always be emphasized, but to which Jesus unveils by his own admission what is behind the curtain within his heart. And I think we do understand this feeling at least a little bit and to the degree that we hate uh, wickedness. And sometimes you can just read a little bit of the news and think, how in the world? I was reading uh, just this past week about how pedophilia is being relabeled minor attracted persons to remove the stigma of it. I don't know, maybe some stigmas are warranted. Uh, Abortion, 44 million dead in the past 12 months. Uh, It's the leading cause of death worldwide in 2022. Uh, Victims are are most vulnerable and and yet it's celebrated. Hawaii News News article, uh, Hawaii News Now article, December 14th, Uh, The conclusion of a year-long investigation which revealed a disproportionate number of Hawaiian women and girls who are exploited, go missing, are murdered, and are victims of sex trafficking, abuse, and domestic violence. And you read these things and you get upset, right? You want justice. You want something to be done. Retribution, the sentencing of whoever is responsible. And in those moments where our hatred for maybe the more obvious uh, things is at its purest, we get a little bit of an idea of how much it is that the Son of God hates sin. Now, now someone who uh, is a skeptic of all of this might use this as proof that God does not exist for how do these things continue to happen and there's no stoppage nor is there any immediate judgment for it. And that is a logical objection. When we read about the flood, that doesn't happen all the time. You read about Sodom and Gomorrah, these seem to be aberrations rather than the rule. Where is this Jesus who is supposed to return? And what is he doing about all that is wrong within the world? Well, Jesus shows to us his heart in these verses. Uh, He wants judgment more than we want it. And yet we as Christians know, we know from passages like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, which talks about this fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The question comes up, well, why not already? And it says there, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
it, it, it often does seem like the Lord is inattentive, especially when the sinfulness of humanity reaches newer and higher peaks of evil that, that perhaps he doesn't see nor does he care about it, that God is relatively unmoved by sin, but he is not unmoved. The fire of judgment, Jesus wants it kindled. He wants it more than any of us want it. The delay is for the sake of the elect to come to repentance before that judgment does inevitably arrive. The Lord is long-suffering, and it is often because the Lord is long-suffering that he gets discredited as not caring about sin at all. But Jesus shows to us here that he wants the fires of judgment already lit. And so the statement, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled, shows to us Jesus' true heart about sin, Jesus' holiness, which hates wickedness, and his longing and eagerness for justice and judgment to take place. And if that were the only thing that he expresses to us within his heart, we'd all be toast, brothers and sisters, because none of us are innocent, not a single one. But it is by the grace of God that there is the twin and the adjacent statement with it, for Jesus also says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. There is an equal eagerness here for a baptism to be baptized with. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is not talking about water here. Jesus is calling his upcoming crucifixion where he will stand before his people and absorb that fiery judgment of God against humanity's wickedness. He calls that a baptism. And this is part of the reason why the incarnation is so important that Jesus actually be truly human because Jesus as a human on behalf of believing humanity he will absorb that wrath of God against us upon himself, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus here is calling that suffering and that pain a baptism to be baptized with. Baptism meaning this immersion. He's going to be immersed. It's very graphic. He's going to be immersed, uh, baptized into an extreme amount of suffering for himself on behalf of and in place of his church, his bride, that this is going to be the most amount of pain, the weightiest suffering a human would ever feel, ever, and yet Jesus wants it. He's longing for it so much that he is distressed until it is accomplished. And this is where we begin to see just how much it is that he loves us, even though that word love is not found within these verses. I mean, who wants to endure pain like that? Who desires to be crucified? And not just a physical crucifixion, which is torturous in and of itself, but the actual uh, righteous indignation of God against sinfulness to experience that as someone who has never had any sinfulness at all within himself. It's one thing to receive retribution for something you earned. It's entirely another for something that is not yours, but Jesus wants it, and he can't wait to have it. You know, some people say childbirth is the most physical pain uh, that one can experience in this life. I've heard that it's pretty painful. And, and you can witness a very pregnant lady. Uh, the more pregnant, the more eager it seems to get the baby out. And that's not because there's this love for the painful feeling of pushing a human being out of your body. It's because of what happens through pain's passageway. That childbirth precedes the joy of unveiling the child. And the longer you've carried the baby, the more you want that baby out. Jesus wants the cross here, not because he loves the pain of the cross 
or he loves to be on this receiving end of God's holiness expressing wrath against our sin. No, he wants a cross because that pain precedes the joy of washing and cleansing and forgiving his people from the very thing which he hates. And Jesus has been carrying this cross with him from before the foundation of the world. It's as if he's saying here, I don't want to carry this cross anymore. I want this cross to carry me. Hebrews 12, 2, the exhortation there is to look at Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And it says there, for who, uh, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why does he want the cross so much? Because there's this joy set before him, the joy of reconciling his people to himself, which he is eager to do even when that painful cross and that baptism of suffering is the passageway forward. And this is where we need to understand Jesus' very heart for us, church family, and how much his heart has been set on saving you. I mean, Jesus left the glory of heaven to accomplish this. Born in a manger, creator in, in one sense, becoming a creature. That's because his heart is set on saving you. And even coming to this earth and growing up, he could have made a place for himself here. I mean, who can heal at will? Who can multiply food, walk on water, cause a blind to see? He could have started a business. It would have been super successful. If he wanted the kingdoms of the world and its luxuries, he could have easily had all of them. But Jesus again is set upon that cross because his heart is set upon you. And his devotion is such that it's entirely unwavering, utterly undistracted. Nothing else could or would make him lose this laser-like focus upon bringing you washed and forgiven and made new to himself. And this love uh, gets even more intense in our realization of it, even when we look into the mirror, even at the objects of his love, uh, even of a redeemed person, a Christian. Never mind saving your enemies, Jesus. I mean, even after con conversion, can any one of us say that we've been entirely devoted to him? Never wandering, never distracted, always walking in a way that is worthy of the calling of Christ. I mean, we can be singing and our minds wandering to football. The preacher can be preaching and we're more concerned, are we going to eat Taco Bell or McDee's after this service is over? And Jesus, he knows all of this and that doesn't distract him either. No, he remains so focused. Jesus' love for us is not like our love for him, which often falters. He shows us his heart here. I cannot wait to be baptized into this baptism for them. I'm longing and wanting to experience judgment instead of them so that I might have my people cleansed, washed, forgiven, born again, made anew so I can have my bride because that is somehow the only way to describe the kind of love that I have for my people as if his heart is only and ever truly devoted to his beloved. And this is why there is this distress in waiting for all of this to be accomplished because he is so eager to save. And so two things are true at the same time, that Jesus hates sin and wants a judge, and Jesus loves us and wants judgment on himself instead of us. He wants, in one sense, to bring hell on earth in righteous indignation. But he wants to experience hell in our place so that we never will experience it for ourselves. He despises sin and loves a sinner, and both are true at the same time. 
you know, church family, we have to understand these twin truths to really understand uh, the gospel of good news. God is holy, and we are not. We can't have a God who only hates sin and doesn't love. And we can't have a God who's indifferent to sin and loves, and so just live however which way you want because it ain't a big deal to him. God hates sin, and he loves us. You know, many preachers have said variations of the same truth over the years, that we are more uh, wicked than we imagine, and yet more loved than we can comprehend. And both are true at the same time. And so Jesus longs, he longs for this gospel to be accomplished, uh, judgment upon unbelievers and peace to those who are his. Uh, but while this peace is very real between God and his people, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy or peaceful. Look with me at verse 51. Jesus continues, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. While it is that Jesus is the prince of peace, uh, that's not all that Jesus is going to bring. And he's preparing his followers here for this kind of division that the gospel can often create, even into the most intimate of familial relationships that we have on earth. Jesus himself is this dividing line. And sometimes it is that holding fast to him will inevitably separate you from others, and not just any others, but sometimes the people who are closest with you and who matter the most to you. And I know for uh, many in this room, these words hit really close to home. Some of us are the only uh, believers in our families. Uh, some are the only believer in our marriage. And no doubt, no doubt, a commitment to Christ, it does give to you a new family. Luke 8, 21, Jesus tells the people there when his mom and his brothers are looking for him, he says to all of them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so for sure, God does give to us a new family and deep relationships within the church, even with those we have no biological connection with. That somehow his blood is stronger than other blood ties. But that's not the whole story. And Jesus wants us to know this from the beginning. Oftentimes, there is more conflict and division and animosity when a person comes to faith in Jesus and wants to live for Jesus now more than they want to live for themselves. The more they talk about Jesus or, or shine that light, there can be this division even in our closest relationships that weirdly, the more we love him, the less love we may receive from them. The more we cling to Jesus, the less we experience closeness with the family and perhaps instead a growing distance because of the way you live your life or what you invest your time and money in, how you want to raise the kids, how important the church is to you. Just, just you're altogether different. And, and Jesus knows that oftentimes when we hit adversity and conflict that we might begin to second guess the decisions that we've been making prior to that conflict. But if you find, brothers and sisters, that this is happening to you, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. It could mean more that you're actually doing something right. You know, we can't have this sense sometimes that Jesus is just going to make every single one of our relationships better. And that's just simply not true. Jesus is sitting us down here and he's looking us into the eyes, uh, even with a topic that we may not want to talk about. And he's telling us point blank in clear cut and non-negotiable words that following me may mean that you lose your family's affections. 
Following me may mean sometimes and in some cases that you actually lose your family. There's countless testimonies in Muslim nations of that being true. There's just no sugarcoating it at all. And many will not choose to follow uh, Jesus because of this. Uh, my friends are not with me. My family's not with me. And more and more, I'm not going to be in this at all. Uh, don't do that. There's, there's some younger people here. Maybe your parents are not believers, or maybe one parent's not a believer. And there's a call implicit in this text to be more obedient to Christ's authority, even then to mom and dad's authority. Uh, brother, sister, Jesus, he knows what you're going through. Even in his own life on this earth, his own biological family thought he was nuts, but it didn't stop him because he was set on saving us. Jesus is absolutely worth whatever cost it takes. He's worth it, and he tells us beforehand of the kind of suffering there might be when we do follow him, and it's worth it. It's worth it. Don't lose heart. Cling to him more than you cling to anyone else. Uh, we may be saddened by the reality, but we can't prevent it. Listen to uh, J.C. Ryle. He says, let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and divisions upon earth. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man. So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there needs to be division. To be surprised at it is the height of folly. The very existence of division is one proof of Christ's foresight and of the truth of Christianity. And so Jesus does bring peace to his people, a peace with God and a peace with other believers. But Jesus also brings a vision and among those who refuse to see Jesus for who he is. Uh, he wants us to be prepared for what may be coming ahead in our lives and not expect some kind of universal harmony so that we won't be surprised by conflict and division when it does come. Verse 54, we continue. He also said to the crowds, when you see a, lo uh, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus, he turns his attention to the crowds, not just his followers, his disciples, but to the people, and he rebukes them for their lack of spiritual discernment and understanding. He's turning his attention to those who don't currently believe in him. And I want you to notice, uh, throughout Jesus' ministry, he does work in marvelously gentle ways. He touches lepers that no one would ever touch. He spends time with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, he talks to adulterous women at wells in this very appealing fashion. Drink from a different water and you're never going to thirst again. He's offering himself winsomely to them. But he can also be very stern when there's this obstinate, uh, repeated refusal to recognize what God is doing with his appearance. Now, one reason why Jesus calls the crowds here hypocrites is because the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, they are supposedly God's people, and their identity is found in we're waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Our, our being is wrapped up in the appearing of, of Christ, and they were to be eager and waiting for him, which is why God gave to them so many prophecies and indicators for Jesus' appearing. Jesus is born in a place prophesied. I mean, Pastor Dave uh, referenced a few weeks ago about 300-plus prophecies being fulfilled in the first advent of Jesus. They were supposed to know. They were supposed to be eager. And even if you didn't know all 300 plus of them, there's lepers being cleansed. Blind people are now seen. Paralytics are all walking around in the neighborhood that they were paralytics in. 
Demons are cast out. Food is multiplied undeniably in front of thousands who all ate and were full. Teaching is preached with authority and in a way that no one had ever heard anything like it. And all of these authenticating signs of Jesus were great and undeniable and accomplished in front of multitudes. And the news of all of these things had spread into all the neighboring regions. And yet still, the crowds and the people came for a show and not much more than that. And the religious leadership investigated Jesus. And their conclusion is, we want to kill Jesus. And so the very people who were supposedly so identified with, so eager for this coming Messiah, Jesus calls them hypocrites because they aren't really about him. And they're hypocrites also because they can forecast the weather by predictive indicators, but they can't discern the time of Jesus' appearing, even when it slaps him in the face. I mean, we know when it's raining, we just look that way. Are there clouds coming? The rain's going to be longer. We don't need Guy Haggy to tell us anything. We don't need it. We can discern these things on our own. God in the flesh is in their midst and undeniably so. And they refuse to see anything. They refuse to be anything more than casually interested. It's not their ability to discern. They can discern when they want to. It's their refusal to do so by rejecting the sufficient information God has already given to them. Now, in the year 2023, each person today actually has more than a lot of these people did in the first century. We have account after written account of miracle after miracle. Uh, we have recorded and significant summaries of Jesus' preaching ministry. We have early church witness, a litany of historians attesting to the historicity of these facts, uh, the historicity of the resurrection even coming from people who never ventured into saving belief. There are mountains of evidence, and yet people would not dig they, they rather not dig or wait their way through it because all of this is inconsequential to how I want to live my life, uh, which is without the reality of Jesus at all. And it's not because God hasn't given us enough. He has. He has given everything to the world. He has given his son to us. It is because people generally would rather live as if God had not ever sent Jesus at all and would instead rather spend their time trying to uh, predict the stock market, the housing market, talk about who's going to win what in the playoffs and who's going to go where in the draft and raise their kids to live exactly the same way. They would rather almost do anything else than spend any effort about the most significant event in history thus far in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so this is a rebuke to those who refuse to come to the faith, a wake-up call from Jesus, uh, really from a heart of mercy and grace. Uh, but we continue as Jesus presses further into this warning, verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. What Jesus wants here is for the people, the crowds, to feel this urgency um, and, and to judge rightly. Jesus says this while people are still trying to form their opinions about him and may perhaps feel comfortable in this halfway uh, existence, that we got time, uh, all the time in the world, and making a decision about this man in front of me is not the most urgent matter at hand. Uh, but judging for ourselves what is right about Jesus is the most pressing matter we will ever have in this life. You know, friends, the, the Bible's clear that by our uh, sinfulness, we have each, in, in one way, made God our adversary. And there's enough evidence within each of our lives 
within each of our hearts, within the skeletons we have in our closet, that would give us, before a jury, a guilty verdict. And we are headed into the presence of an eternal judge. But the judgment has not arrived yet for, for any of us. No one alive has been sentenced yet. And God has provided a way, and, and with the heart of Jesus open before us, that he does want judgment to come because he's holy. And yet he has also taken judgment upon himself because he is full of grace and love and with the crowds and their ability to discern things. And each person is responsible for their own decisions concerning him. The urgency is such that we need to make an effort to settle with this God before that final day. We need to look up and see the love of Jesus for his people and witness his determination to save because when the judgment does come, all who are without Christ will never get out until that debt of our sin is paid to the very last penny, which is to say never. And so either our judgment will be paid by us or our judgment will be paid for in Jesus. The fire of God's wrath is to come, and while it is delayed for the secret sake of people coming to repentance. We must come to terms with him decisively, uh, quickly and without delay. Uh, we just have to but listen to our own conscience that we're not all that like we think we are, that we're guilty. We must listen to the word of God that he has provided a way in Jesus where you can be acquitted of that guilt and rewarded for his holy life and come to know a love that is unlike any love this world has ever seen. And as we come uh, before the Lord's table, uh, one of our elders will explain it more. Uh, I think Ben is going to come up here and explain it. Uh, but what we're really holding is what represents the body and blood of Christ. We, we have bread and we have wine or, or grape juice. And this symbolizes that which is everything to us. That our case is settled not because we're innocent, but because he is. He settles it once and for all. He has in his body and blood extinguished the fires of God's judgment and we are justified before the Lord to call him Father, to call Christ our bridegroom, to experience a love that these earthly words can only act as faint pointers to, that as we hold Jesus in our hands, so to speak, that when we eat and drink, that's when we appropriate uh, all of him to ourselves. That's the symbol of believing. I trust in Christ. I believe in Christ. I eat and drink of Christ. He is my sustenance, my covering, my, my, the lover of my soul. He is my everything. As we eat and drink, this is a symbol of really believing of him as we partake of him to understand his love more and more and the peace that he grants to each of us, although in the meantime, our lives may be more difficult because of it. Would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you uh, even for texts like these that... that are really uh, difficult to hear sometimes. I thank you, God, that you're holy and loving, that you're just and kind, uh, that you, you hate sin and, and love sinners, and that, that you don't just love in sentiment, Lord, but you've given us your all. You've given us everything. You've given us your son. You've given us Christ. And I pray more and more by the Holy Spirit that you would... Um, uh, rub our eyes a little bit and help us to see a little bit more clearly than we did uh, just that the surpassing worth of, of our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, uh, that everything else just might pale in comparison. Uh, I pray, God, that you'd bring us near to you and bring us near to each other uh, as we come to your table. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.